Welcome back to the Clave Chronicles. I'm Rebecca Bodenheimer, and today I'm speaking with Raul Fernandez about Afro-Cuban jazz, a movement of the 1940s that is just one of the many rich musical exchanges within the African diaspora, and specifically between um, African-American and Afro-Cuban musicians. And Afro-Cuban jazz was the foundation of what would become known as Latin jazz. So I would like to tell you a little bit about my guest today. Born in Santiago de Cuba, which is Cuba's second city, Raul Fernandez is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Irvine. Among the many books he's written is Latin Jazz, La Combinación Perfecta, which was also a touring exhibition at the Smithsonian from 2002 to 2006. I'm very happy to have Raul on today to speak about the Cuban roots of Latin jazz. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for that that nice introduction. Um, uh, I'm always ready to talk about Latin jazz, but uh, I am I'm really happy that you're interviewing me. I think that, um, well, I've always thought that your book, Geografías de Cubanidad, Geographies of Cubanity, <laughs> is really, really an important um, milestone. Anyone who wants to study Cuban rumba, and also how it has evolved. Uh, really needs to look at that book. And I know I've reviewed it, and uh, I hope that people are reading it. Uh, and it, I think that, that your book goes way beyond rumba. I think some of the things you say about Santiago, about Matanzas, and the whole thing about which is the black city in Cuba and what are the characteristics of the summit, you open up a whole bunch of things there that are really interesting so I'm, I'm glad to be able to tell you on on air to, to to thank you for that book oh that is so sweet thank you so much um and i i also have to say that raul has been a very wonderful mm -hmm. mentor to younger um scholars interested in cuba um and also uh, you know began an important initiative um, at the University of California system to kind of bring together all of the scholars, faculty, and, and graduate students who were working on Cuba. So um, so you also have done a lot in this field. Uh, so in previous episodes, I've spoken just very briefly about the, um, the early musical connections between the U.S. and Cuba, and specifically the New Orleans Havana circuit. Mm -hmm. And the ways that uh, musicians like Jelly Roll Morton and others incorporated Cuban rhythms into their early jazz. Do you want to expand a little bit on these connections between Cuban music and early New Orleans jazz? Well, sure. Uh, I mean, I think you've already you know addressed that on in in the uh, in the broadcast, but um, it, it is pretty evident if you look at the uh, at the history that. You know, New Orleans and Havana were two cities that were very close and music musicians, you know, moved back and forth between the two. You know, you have uh, you have records of, uh, you know, music stores selling uh, Danson music sheets in, uh, in, in New Orleans in, uh, in 1879. This is how quickly, you know, yes. uh, forms, you know, went back and forth. And so I think to some extent, um, I would say that Jazz and Cuban music were developing more or less at the same time and together around that time. Uh, and this, of course, continued for a while. You've mentioned Jelly Roll Morton. Others uh, from the era in uh, New Orleans said the same thing, that, you know, early jazz you utilized the beat of the contradanza known as habanera. That was kind of an integral part of the rhythm. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's definitely at the birth. Both things are together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we're going to, I guess, you know, kind of leap forward a few decades and start to speak directly about the Cuban, music, Cuban musicians who were really instrumental in creating this movement that was called Afro-Cuban jazz. Um, so I was thinking that we might start with Mario Balsa and who sure. he was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, let me let me just say, you know, to continue with the previous question that I think, again, as you well know, there is a con there's a continuity, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like 
there was New Orleans and then there was a big, huge gap. And oh, sure. And there, I do want to honor all the Puerto Rican musicians that uh, that played on the Hellfighters band, that played jazz, the musicians like Tisol and others that were yes. members of the big swing bands of the 20s and 30s. But certainly with Mario Bausa. Yes, and and I can and I can actually you know just insert something there if if you want to. Yes, I no, mean Juan, Juan Tisol and uh, who was a very important uh, right. a member of the Duke Ellington band. Right. right. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that I don't want people to get the impression that there was something at the beginning and then a complete gap. I think. Oh that sure. There was always a continuity there, uh, but it, it is certainly the case that with Mario Bausa y los Afrocubanos, the Afro Cubans, you have what people call an inflection point. That was a big breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, this was a um, a conscious, determined attempt, first by Mario Bausa and the Afro-Cubans, and later by, by Desi Gillespie, to really bring the two things together. Okay, and so if you listen to the early Mario Bausa and the Afro-Cubans, I mean, this sounds like a big band a la Duke Ellington, but with mm -hmm. Latin rhythms, with, you know, the conga drums, which to me are really essential. I think before... Um, before Mario and then later um, Desi Gillespie, I think the conga drum, which is, you know, I think to me a representation of the Africanness of the music, was yes. not present. And Mario Bausa and then Gillespie bring it in. So yeah, Mario Bausa and Tanga, which I think is what one of the one of the first tunes. So yeah. yeah. Um, do you yeah. want to talk a bit about a little bit about who he was? Yeah, Mario Bausa was a, a clarinetist. He was actually one of these, uh, you know prodigies he was playing clarinet you know at a very very age in, in in havana he was playing with a symphony i think at the time when he was 12 or 13 but of course as musicians know you don't make very much money just playing symphony mm -hmm. and it was uh the case with a lot of cuban music and the cuban musicians and musicians all over the world uh, mu mu musicianship is a trade you know so you may play in the symphony where you play dance music you play whatever and so, in addition to playing with the symphony, Mario Bausa was mem a member of a uh, of a charanga band, which plays traditional Cuban danzón. Uh, he came yes. to New York back in 1928, and he discovered, or for the first time, saw live jazz bands. And he became his goal was: I have to come here. I have to mm. work with this music. And then a couple of years later, he came, and then he established himself in the 1930s with a number of. Uh, you know, straight ahead jazz bands. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, I actually um, my research told me that uh, he he was in Cab Calloway's band, right? And he had a ha maybe had a hand in, like when Ella Fitzgerald was discovered, and yeah, presumably he was a person that said this that voice that I just heard, you know, needs to be brought in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean I also I also have heard, I don't know if this is true, that he arrived in New York City in nineteen thirty on the same boat as Don Aspiasu's orchestra, who this I've I've actually mentioned a few times just as, you know, kind of El Manicero and how important that was in terms of the popularity of Cuban music. Right. Well it is a fact that they came together on the same boat. Mm -hmm. Same boat from, from Havana. And now that you point out, yeah, this goes back to what I mentioned about the continuity of the relationship yes. between Cuban music and jazz, because the, the peanut vendor, once when it was a hot so-called rumba number, but then um, quite a few jazz musicians, you know, then produced, you know, covers of it. In fact, famously, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Mani, Mani. <laughs> yeah. In the early 30s, one of the most popular jazz tunes around was basically jazz versions of the peanut vendor. Yes. Manicero. Yeah. 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 Before we um, actually get into Tanga, um, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, it seems that in maybe in the later 30s or 1940s, there was a lot of migration by Cuban musicians to New York. Um, and I also recently had an episode about Arsenio Rodriguez and how he also moved to New York, of course, later in the decade. But why do you think there was such a big movement? Well, you know, I think, again, to go back to the fact that as, uh, as a lot of young people were told by their parents, don't be a musician because you're going to die of hunger. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that I, I don't want to, I'm not a determinist, but I think that economics really plays a huge, you know, uh, play in this. So if you look at, Let's say you look at musicians in Cuba and you see that 
most of the musicians that are in Havana are not from Havana. They migrate from the provinces because mm -hmm. there is business in Havana. And then if you look outside, you find that it's not just New York. A lot of Cuban musicians move and settled in Mexico City, this big market for music. Oh, yeah. Musicians move and settle in Paris and a whole lot of them settle in New York. I mean, I think this is looking primarily for opportunity, economic opportunity. I think that's the driving force. I mean, again, there are elements like in the case of Bausa earlier, uh, you know, there was an interest in in, uh, in acceding to this music that he was so fascinated with, jazz. Um, but I think for the most part, I think you're always going to find that an economic motive is the key to move people. Mm -hmm. You know, in Havana in the, in the 1940s, uh, <clears throat> how many Bongwan Conga drummers there were? Dozens. Mm -hmm. Probably one in every corner. Yeah. Okay. Famously, Mongo Santa Maria, who also came to the United States in uh, in the late 1940s, he never had a steady job with any band. He played with every band in town, with every song group in town. But he, he had a day job. He was a mailman. Interesting. He was a mailman until he came to the United States. So I think that that is really the, the fundamental explanation. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we also then have Bausa's brother-in-law, Machito, or Frank Grillo. Um, who was one of the architects? Do you want to talk a little bit about him, and then we'll uh, then we can uh, talk a little bit about Tanga. Well, we're gonna talk about Machito, and we're also gonna talk about Machito's sister. Mm, yes, oh, Graciela. Graciela. Yeah. Graciela is a person that, for reasons that are to some extent understandable, has been ignored. But anyway, Machito. <clears throat> I think Machito was a great combination with with uh, with Mario Bausa because Mario Bausa was a person who was highly trained, highly trained as a classical musician. And of course, he was familiar with Cuban music, but he was familiar with the danzón, which is an older form. Yes. Whereas Pachito was a person that was totally immersed in the new tradition of the Cuban son that had really come to Havana in the 19... Well, had become popular in the 1920s. Right. And he had been singing as a second voice called, I would say in Cuba, uh, you know, the, the, the bass, the baritone voice in some of the great Cuban groups of the time. And so it was, you had the combination of a danzonero and clarinetist and, and classical musician who could be a musical director and the sonero, who was very, very, you know, in tune with the new music that was coming out of Cuba. Yes. Um, I, I do want to say, you know, uh, if I can, may jump ahead too, that a few years later, I think in the early, well, in the mid 1940s, Machito's, um, well, Machito was drafted into the army. <clears throat> here in the u.s you mean yeah okay and he, didn't, he didn't last long because he got injury or something but anyhow they they brought his sister from cuba graciela who had been uh a banjo player and a bass player in cuba and also a singer and she joined uh machito and the afro-cubans and i will i will develop a little bit later but i think she's also important in the uh, in the in that inflection point that was the development of uh, afro-cuban jazz Yes, great. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk about Tanga for a minute. Um, let's um, let's just set that up because then yeah. I'll, I'll want to play. Uh, I'll play a clip from it. Okay. Well, again, um, one thing that Machito and the Afro Cubans did, led by Mario Bausa, they did something which is quite common among musicians. They took uh, tunes that were popular in Cuba, and they arranged them you know to produce a jazz version of it mm -hmm. at that time in cuba in the late 1930s there was, was uh, among the sones the songs in cuban music that was popular a lot of them were like le manicero like the pino Rene. they were pregones they were street vending tunes and one that was very very uh, popular one was called el botellero el botellero very very popular by a singer called uh, bola de nieve and so what um if you go back and listen to an old recording of El Botellero on the first few bars of Tanga, you can see the similarity. Oh, interesting. So, so Mario Bausa picked up El Botellero and said, let's do something with this. And after that came out Tanga. Interesting. Okay, so it kind of emerged a little bit kind of from a pregón, just like... Yes, yes. El Manicero. Yes. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I'll just say that um, Tanga was... It, it's considered to be, or at least it's written about this way, as kind of the first piece that truly integrates jazz and, and Cuban music. I don't I don't know if you agree with that necessarily or well, just... I, I can talk about that a little bit. I think that um, you know, um until about nineteen ninety, again, I think na nationalism 
gets in the way sometimes of uh, analysis. And between 1950 and the early 1990s, the conventional wisdom among jazz historians and critics was there was this Gillespie and Chano Pozo who had really provided that inflection point. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to I have to say something. I have to say that if you go back and read Cuban writings way back in 1950, Fernando Ortiz, the anthropologist, and this is in his books, you can actually check it out. He was saying at that time that Mario Bausa, the Afro-Cubans, and Chano Pozo had transformed jazz. But this became a, a, a known fact in U.S. You know, academic history until in the 1990s, a very good journalist, Max Salazar, a Puerto Rican journalist, who had really documented the history of popular music in Cuba. He said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was not dizzy, even though he's in, he, he was really Mario Bosa. Now, of course, there are differences. Mm-hmm. But I think by now it is accepted that Bosa and the Afro-Cubans were the first. Now, the difference are that Mario Alessandro Afro Cuba was more like, as I said, with a big swing dance band with right. Cuban rhythms. In the case of Gillespie, it's a different fusion because you, you have the, the transformation in jazz from the swing to, to bebop. bebop. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, more complex chords, really great musicianship, a lot of notes, very fast, frenetic, frantic. And so that is what Cuba is, which is the later development. But yeah, it's now accepted after. After a number of years, that in fact it was um, Mario Machito, mm-hmm. and I would have had later Graciela, the ones that were the responsible ones. Yeah, so I'll just say before I play a clip that um, you know we're going to hear the sounds of basically a you know a big jazz band, three trumpets, um, five saxes, and I believe that also includes Charlie Parker, correct? You know, I don't remember. I know he played quite a few times with the band, but I don't know because there are several recordings of tanga, and I don't mm-hmm. know where, where he plays in that one. Okay, okay. Um, and then we have, of course, the a jazz rhythm section, piano, bass. Then we have the addition of the Cuban elements, right? The the Cuban percussion section, um, timbales, bongo, congas, and maracas. So, yeah, I'm going to play a clip from this and... Um, I won't be able to get through the whole song, but I may bring out two different clips to just because uh, there's some interesting like harmonic things that go on in the middle of the song. And so, yeah. All right. to talk now about, about Gillespie and uh, Chano more or what, what is your your idea? Yeah, yeah, I was I was going to ask you uh, before we get to that, I was just going to ask about uh, the racial politics of the time and the fact that jazz bands were largely still segregated at this time. So like, you know, what did 
people like Machito and Mario Balsa encounter at this time? And was that similar or different to um, what would have been happening in Cuba at the time? Uh, yeah, that is a really a, a complicated story because, in fact, as you know, Cuba is very long. <laughs> yes. And I've always said, and I think you suggest that in your book, that Cuba is really at least two countries, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes when people talk about Havana, it's just Havana. Yeah. But you, know, you can go to Santiago and see bands that are all black or, or you know, mixed. Yeah. You know, right with the Cuba, you know, back in the 1930s, and which is not the case in Havana, where this is progressing very, very, very slowly. Not until the 19th. Actually, the, the bands becoming mixed bands, it really occurs pretty much around the same time in um in the United States, Cuba, although I have to say that in Cuba, it predates, it predates the United States. For example, again, Mario Bausac was playing in the, in the Philharmonic. In oh, Havana sure. Yeah. It's not a, a massive, you know, integration, but, you know, there is more evidence of that, just like there is with baseball and everything mm -hmm. else. Cuba. Yeah, sure. Yes. There, like there wasn't, uh, you know, there weren't uh, segregation laws on the books formally. Right. Yeah. Although it was practiced, especially in Havana. Yeah, uh, it was not practiced in other parts of, of the, and there was part of sporadic, you know, in some areas of Cuba, but not in the in the eastern part. Anyway, in the United States, we know that story. I mean, the thing that is interesting about Machito and the Afro-Cubans is that they actually they had a particular audience that was, if you will, white in the sense that a lot of the, uh, oh, the interesting. clubs in the New York area really took a liking to Machito and the Afro-Cubans, and you know, a lot of times they really played in the. Catskills and a number of places for um, you know Jewish retreats and clubs and parties and things like that. So again, but we know what the situation was in in New York at the time. Again, in the case of jazz, it's very different. I think that the jazz audiences way back beginning in the '30s, and certainly with Benny Goodman and other people that follow him, bands were began to be more integrated. I think jazz is kind of like a, really a driving force, or at least a beachhead, or whatever you want to call it. It's at the vanguard of uh, integration of the United States. Um, mm, yeah. That is really the case in the 1940s. So, yeah, let's let's go on and talk a little bit about Chano Pozo uh, yeah. and, and his collaboration with Dizzy Gillespie. Right. Uh, before I forget, since I brought up several times Graciela. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. Sure. Let's talk about Graciela. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing about Graciela. So, you know, let me tell you an anecdote, okay? <clears throat> So when I was working for the Smithsonian for that exhibit that you mentioned, I got the chance of interviewing Graciela for uh, for two days in her apartment in, in New York. Oh, and, wow. Uh, it was really, I mean, she was in her 80s, and I was very impressed by her. And then, and she was a very friendly person. At one point, she said to me, would you like to hear my latest recording? <laughs> and I said, sure. Wow. <laughs> so she had this you know, stereo in there, and she played, and it was it's an album called Stiff to Ray, to Ray, the, uh, you know, the horn player who also plays, you know, seashells and whatever else. And so there was a tune in there where she sings, and she sings an old Cuban bolero called Ayer la vi llorar, although he, of course, she changed that to Ayer lo vi llorar, and I'm listening to this one. And this one is 82 or 83, and what I'm listening to is a jazz singer. This is mm. not Olga this is not a, a typical... Cuban woman bolero singer. This woman is the phrasing and the background. Wow, this is. And then I start thinking, she, this woman who's 82 didn't learn to sing this way now. Right. So I remember I came back to Los Angeles and I had a good friend who had been the bassist, and that would bring us into Channel Post, the bassist in Dizzy Gillespie's band, Al McKibben. Okay, yeah. I was a good friend of Al McKibben, and I went to see him. We, I used to go to when, when he played here clubs with a small uh, quartet and I was having a drink with him and said, yeah, tell me about Graciela. Was, uh, did she sing jazz or what? And she said, oh, of course. She was a jazz singer. In fact, this is everything she could do, she said, because the whole back, because the whole sound background had was all these African-American musicians on the horns and the piano. Right. And the only thing they knew how to play was jazz. Yeah, of course she was a jazz singer. And then I've gone back and I realized that um, a lot of the recordings were for the Latin audience, for the Cuban and the Puerto Rican audience, and they were doing all this double and standard bolero, blah, 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 whatever. But obviously, live, she was different. In fact, Mama Cuban told me, I used to go try go and listen to her, to listen to her intoning those boleros. Um, 
And I think what happened is this. At that time, bebop is going full speed. Then from Cuba, you have the mambo. You have yeah. after or two, everything is intense and fast and a lot of musicianship. And she was singing boleros, just up in a, in a jazz format. Mm -hmm. So that eso no pegó. It doesn't stick at the time. Yeah. I am thinking, if you listen to most of the jazz that is recorded in the last 10 years, what is it? It's ballads, boleros, slow tempo. So Graciela just, in a sense, was doing something at the wrong time. But mm -hmm. I think that she needs to be considered to be one of the founders of Afro-Cuban Latin jazz. And I appreciate you, you bringing her into this story. about Dizzy Gillespie and um, Channel Pulse for a little bit. And let me give some background. And by the way, I want to thank you again because it gives me an opportunity to say a few things that are not written that I think need to be written. Oh, great. Said, okay. Yes. Uh, some people are beginning to do that. For example, there's a very good book out right now by um, Christopher Washburn. Chris oh, Washburn. yeah. Yeah, ethnomusicologist. Yep. He's got a book called Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz, which really covers a lot of material that needs to be said. Okay, but anyhow, what I wanted to say is this. The story goes that Chano Post is in New York. He comes to New York for, for work, okay? He's well-known in Cuba as a drummer, as a dancer, and as a composer. Straight from, straight from the Afro-Cuban uh, folkloric and rumba scene, yeah. Yes, and he had composed tunes that were so widespread that Xavier Cougat, who was playing watered-down Cuban music in the United States, had already played them, like blend, blend, blend. With someone so popular that there, there was a club in New York called the Blend 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 Club. That's how well known Chano Pozo was. Okay. Wow. Yeah. A composer. So he comes to New York. He comes as a dancer. He, he does these various odd jobs. And then the story goes that Desi Gillespie approached Mario Bausa and said, Look, I'm really interested in those those tom toms, Cuban tom toms. And I'd like to bring one of those players into my band. Now, I want to go back a little bit. Because why is it that he wasn't the first one that was interested in that? There are, there are recordings and videos of Charlie Parker also with conga drummers a couple of years before. They were trying to do something with the conga drums and jazz. Mm -hmm. And those experiences were not quite work, working out. But my question is, where are these conga drums coming to the picture? And again, I think I have to point to, to a couple of people that, have not, that are not mentioned in that history. Okay, And so there is a woman. Another woman. Women are everywhere. Okay. Mm. Hidden, right? So there's another woman that you, I'm, I know you're familiar with because she was an anthropologist and a, and, and, and a dancer, Catherine Dunham. Yes. So Catherine Dunham had explored the Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, Cuba. In Cuba, she came in touch with Fernando Ortiz, the anthropologist, and she found out about bata drums. There are pictures of her mm -hmm. with bata in Havana. Uh, and also, she found out about conga drums and conga drummers. And so when she returns to New York in 1945-46 and she establishes her dance troupe, she puts conga drums and conga drums se segments oh, interesting. into her music. Uh, 
In fact, I forget his name right now, but his musical director was a Cuban musician who was in New York. And that's, that dance troupe performs in theaters in New York or a couple of years. This is where jazz musicians see these things in action. The country drums and the bongos. We want to incorporate that. So again, the role that Ortiz and Dunham yeah. play is not discussed. Anyhow, that's the background. And so this Gillespie meets via Mario Bosso. He meets Chano Pozo. They come together. These are two great musicians. They're both really great composers. They begin to work together and rehearse. And finally, they um, they have a couple of um, you know performances. And one of them, they feature a tune called Manteca. Yeah. Okay? which everybody is quite familiar with, which is considered to be, again, Cubop, Afro-Cuban jazz, one of the birth, you know, events. Yes. Of yeah. the, uh, they recorded a great deal. Um, they traveled to Europe together. Uh, I learned a lot about him from Alma Kibun, who was, you know, his close friend and the bassist, you know, for that band. But it's certainly the case that I would have to say that Dizzy Gillespie, who was already a figure, you know, a well-known figure, uh, in the English-speaking world, right? And the Afro-Cubans were playing for a more limited audience, right? I think that with this Gillespie, you produce a huge splash, mm, yeah. You, and then all of a sudden, we have a new variation, you know, a new synthesis, a new transculturation, I would say, of jazz. There's a new form, which is neither Cuban music nor jazz. It's now Afro-Cuban jazz, and that's the great contribution of. Uh, I don't want to leave everyone out. I mean, I think that. Um, other people were playing around, you know, with uh, with that. But I think those are the two main contributors, you know, to the music. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to play a clip of Manteca. And I don't know if you want to say anything musically about it. Um, but, uh, I mean, I would just say in terms of the formal structure, a lot of Cuban popular music at the time um, was more sort of open-ended in terms of, you know, you have the Montuno section and that can go on for a little while you know, and so on, or rumba. Um, so the formal structure of the song is not as open-ended as Cuban music. It has, a, you know, kind of a little bit more of, of a structure imposed. Um, and then you have these kind of, these two sort of rhythmic, I, rhythmic structures going on at the same time because it's played mm -hmm. with clave, mm -hmm. but also in swing time. Yes. So you kind of have, um, I, I don't know who said, who described it kind of as a timekeeping tug of war, right. <laughs> but you kind of have these two different rhythmic feels going on at the same time. You know, the sort of more um, the, the swing percussion versus the more syncopated Cuban rhythmic elements. Yeah, I, I don't really want to say too much about it, except that, you know, because of exactly what you have described, you know, some people think that... Um, that actually the fusion was not that that was not the best fusion that mm. all the tunes that were recorded later were better i don't know i think this is a um fine i mean I, i'm i'm happy with that okay so there were some more perfect of course because the form is developing yeah i think every birth is difficult every birth is the first every birth is, is hard so um you know when you you know what a mamoncillo is right you know yeah, yeah. It's it's a fruit that you find it, in Cuba. Yeah. You first bite into it, it's kind of sour. Yeah. You know, so you shouldn't throw it away because if you throw it completely away, you don't enjoy the sweetness after that. <laughs> I think that that is the comparison that I like to um, you know, to make. Um, yeah. So anyhow, yes. Uh, yeah. Perhaps it was not the the best you know possible, but it was the first one, and I think for oh, that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that is there are other people that jump on the bandwagon, and I don't want to say it in a pejorative way, but uh, you know, there is the name of this very famous uh, West Coast, you know, uh, pianist whose name you know escapes me right now, who actually worked with the Machito band and uh, recorded the Pino Render and other things like that. What's his name? Uh, sorry, not, about Sta that. not Stan Kenton. Yeah, Stan, Stan Kenton. Okay, sorry. yeah. Um, and so he also, a lot of times when you read the histories, you will see that Stan Kenton is included. He had a very famous recording of the, the peanut vendor and yes. he used the entire Machito, um, percussion section, you know, the rhythm section for it. Um, 
I think that tradition didn't really continue. I think that, again, you can make an, a musical analysis of it. And uh, Machito and this Gillespie, there was, those bands really, they swung, they swung. I mean, there was swing to those bands. And I think it's not that, that Kenton didn't want to. It's just that Kenton was really more into developing concert-like kind of music. He wanted to sort of, quote-unquote, elevate jazz to be a concert music. And so he played the way he did but I think he needs to be included a little bit in the in the birth of uh, Latin jazz. Not at the same level as Machito, not at the same level as this. Just, but yeah. present, never. Yeah, less. yeah. And actually, you know, when I've taught this subject before, I have actually played a clip of his his version of the Peanut Vendor. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's it's especially interesting to play alongside the original, right? The right. Donas Piasu, because uh, you know, it's clearly a, a jazz version. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, for my taste, it doesn't really swing, you know, mm -hmm. too much. But again, you know, uh, this was the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> things, you know? And I think after, after Machito and Kenton and, and Dizzy Gillespie, things begin to get merged and then forms that appear in the 1950s and 60s really partake of everything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm just going to take a pause to uh, to play a clip of Manteca and then we'll and then we'll just talk a little bit more about this transition period sure okay <laughs> wanted to you know move on and maybe speak about Mongo Santa Maria and then this kind of transition to you know I guess California the California style Latin jazz and I don't know how things kind of go from Afro-Cuban jazz to this idea larger idea of Latin jazz there's a couple of transitions going on one is that the big bands with very few exceptions begin to collapse economically they're really hard to maintain so the 1950s an era where jazz, whether Latin jazz or any other kind of jazz, begins to play be played by small combos, mm -hmm. you know, quartets, quintets, you know, sextets, things like that. And I think one of the one of the really important figures in the development of Latin jazz was the was the Cal Jader quintet, also George Shearing, you know, a blank, you know, a British pianist. They began to adapt Latin jazz to that kind of format. Um, I have to say that I think both of them were really, really important in that um, they made the music, they made music have a wider appeal. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I think Shearing first uh, recorded an LP called Latin Escapade, which really sold, I don't know, sold one of those numbers that give you 100,000, I think maybe have, may have been the first jazz album to sell that much. Anyway, it was, um, he had a great great uh, roster in there. Alma Kirwan was the bassist and a, one of the great old-time percussions, Armando Peraza, that I know you're very familiar with, yes. was the conga drummer. Another and, Cuban. Um, <laughs> yeah, Armando Peraza. And so I think first with George Shearing, because Peraza and McKibben played with George Shearing, but then they made a bigger splash with Cal Jader. Okay? After La, Latin um, um, Hispanate, 
Espanada, Latin escapade. Then Cal Jerry came into the, the picture in 1954. He had a, um, you know, he had an album that had some of the exoticism, you know, the way you sold albums with, you know, pictures of, you know, nude women and so forth called Ritmo Caliente. Mm. That is kind of like the way, as you know, things were marketed at the time. But Ritmo Caliente was really, really a very big hit, the, that short uh, LP, 10, 10 issue. And then he came up with an album called Mas Ritmo Caliente. And those, a lot of the tunes really sold a great deal. In fact, one of them, which is uh, usually uh, called Soul Sauce, but really the original name is Wachiwaru. Yeah. Became the signature uh, tune by Cal Jaden. And he played it at the beginning and at the end of every one of his concerts. And Wachiwaru, of course, was a composition by Chano Pozo. So I think that Cal Jaden, uh, sharing first, I think Cal Jaden played a huge role throughout the 1950s i think if you're talking about um small combos that have wide appeal those are the ones to talk about especially Caljet. now my friends in new york will point out that there's oh there's all these other little combos in new york that were very popular mm -hmm. okay and again fine i am sure that i can find some very popular combos in chicago as well so i i think just like in cuba there's a tendency for Havana centrism in the U.S. There is a tendency for New York centrism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the point is that at the national level, there was nothing in New York compared with <laughs> yeah. theater or cheering. And I will discuss that with any one of my buddies from New York. <laughs> yeah. If necessary. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that after that, in terms of um, you know the, the whole the whole scene, I think Mongo Santa Maria plays a very big role because again, his version of events, his version of the music is totally different. Okay. It's something that it's depending on what you listen to. On the one hand, he did a lot of really good folkloric albums. Yeah, you know, but before before we do that, I'm just I'm, I think I'm actually going to play I'm going to play a clip of Wachiwaro just so people okay. can get can get you know the the sound of it. And I the thing that that really strikes me in terms of when you compare it to like Manteca and Tanga is like the feel is so much more laid back. It is so much. It feels you know less less percussive you know the the polyrhythms are are not really so much there um partly i think the 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 timbre of the vibraphone also gives you that feeling right you know right. um it's not it's very laid back but but it's also uh, the you know it's it's also the structure of the music yeah, yeah. Watch you So let's talk about Mongo, yeah. Well, because Mongo, on the one hand, he, he played okay, he played straight ahead Cuban song. He also did some really great folkloric albums where they were playing rumba, playing religious music. But then also what he did uh, in terms of Latin jazz is that he had this combination that was a little bit of soul and funk and Latin. And jazz, you know, mm. Mongo had a sound, okay, that was his own. And again, a lot of the more traditional people like Mario Bausa and I say, well, what the hell is that? We don't, that's not really good music. Well, again, it's a matter of taste. The point is that it was very, very popular. And I think, again, speaking of milestones, the first time that in radio stations that, that play popular music, pop music, the first time that a conga drum is heard is really with Watermelon Man. Wow. Yeah, Watermelon Man. Yeah. Watermelon Man, again, as you know, there's another woman involved. And so if you listen to Watermelon Man, 
who is that woman that might say, hey, baby, what's happening? And that is La Lupe. Oh, wow. I didn't know that was La Lupe. Wasn't this, she actually just showed up in the studio and wow. she was yelling in there. And then the, the producer said, hey, Mongo, you want this woman in here? You want me to, to start it up again? I said, no. And Mongo said, no, just let, let her do whatever <laughs> she wants. So listen to her voice. Okay. <laughs> that is La Lupe. Yeah. Just visiting and just interjecting herself into the recording. Oh, of that sounds very much like La Lupe and something she might do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, I'm going to have to play. Yeah, I'm going to have oh, to yeah. play a clip yeah. of that. Well, you know, I, I was going to play Afro Blue, but we could play Watermelon Man instead. Well, I think both. You can play both, whatever. I'm, I'm thinking that Afro Blue is so so important. Yeah. For reason. Again. It's, I think it's the first time that, that a six-eight rhythm is used in one of, in a popular Latin jazz tunes in the United States. But yeah. the other thing is that it was so jazzy that a lot a lot of people actually uh, covered it. And in fact, many people thought that it was really an original by John Coltrane uh. when he recorded it. And a lot of people were not aware that it was actually Mongo Santa Maria who, who had it. You know, it's one of my favorites. You know, uh, and I think that. There's a way in which Afro Blue is more of a jazz thing than Watermelon. Watermelon Man is there's more to that soul, funk, popular aspect of uh, yeah, of Mongo. Yeah. But you have to say La Lupe. That's her first recording in the United States. Oh, wow. Because I guess that was before all of, you know, the, the like, that was maybe before La Tirana and all, all she of... She recorded any, anything. Uh-huh. She hadn't done any of those, uh, the boleros. Give me baby. He's saying all these things in there. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> also feel it you get more of like sort of laid back feel kind of like with yeah, right. jader's pieces as well yeah mm. uh yeah. and you know despite the fact that he was an incredible percussionist right yeah, yeah. last question would be like do you do you see um a way that this movement has kind of made its way back to cuba i mean of, of course there are many contemporary incredible contemporary cuban jazz musicians musicians in cuba were quite well aware of manteca and machito and the afro cubans yeah and it is like that also some musicians in cuba to the extent that they could because there was not so much of a public for it in the 1950s, even in the 40s, like people like Bebo Valdez and Frank Emilio Flynn and others were really also themselves beginning to experiment. This continued in Cuba. Uh, in fact, jazz and Latin jazz became, you know, 
not popular, but what musicians knew about. And, you know, there was a, a group by a man by the last name of Dulcides, who had a quartet in Cuba, was was very, very much like the Shearing or or, or Jader. Yeah. Um, and then I think that, again, points of inflection, I think uh, the birth of Irakere. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that you have Irakere if you don't yeah. have this. I think Irakere, because in fact, Latin jazz has sort of maybe kind of reached the sort of plateau and there's a very big break with Irakere in the sense that Irakere really incorporates even more rhythm, incorporates the bata. It becomes a much more complex, you know, sort of music. Cuban music was really using a lot of the complex chords of jazz. And so it was really a great breakthrough, great instrumentalists. And I think it sets up a new stage in Latin jazz. Uh, again, it goes up and down in the, in, in the 1990s, then it becomes very widespread. And there's mm -hmm. a huge, there's a huge explosion of Latin jazz. And I think it has remained uh, until now. It's part of the picture. It's jazz and Latin jazz. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the music that we, we listen to all the time. Um, it's here to stay. It's now a, a classical music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, the, you know, you have musicians like whenever Chucho Valdez, um, who, who is, of course, the founder of Irakere, which, uh, you know, I, I think I think I should also say, like, they really blurred the boundaries of, you know, Cuban dance music, and these fusions of jazz and Afro Cuban music, you know, because so many so many of their tunes are, you know, danceable. Yeah, yeah. You're as much of an expert as I am on this thing. <laughs> that, well, not not on Latin jazz specifically. <laughs> you have a lot more knowledge, <laughs> not the least of which is, you know, because you've actually spoken with some of these people. Yeah. Well, that's what happens with age. You end up talking to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just want to thank you so much for joining me today, Raul, and uh, you know, I I particularly appreciate all of your you know, kind of firsthand insight uh, in terms of speaking to, to all of these musicians uh, about, you know, about what was going on in the 1940s and 50s. So, yes, thank you very much. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you for your work. And uh, thank you for, uh, you know, talking about Latin jazz. That is all for today. And I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.